there! Welcome to our fifth episode of HebeCast. I'm Elise Leela, she, her pronouns. Are you hoping to learn more about unions or progressive movements? Then you're in the right spot. We're, only th- we're the only podcast of our kind, combining union info, pop culture, and more. Kicking ass for the working class, one podcast at a time. Whether you're a member of QP Ontario, in a union, wish you were in a union, or just found us while browsing, you're definitely in the right place. I'm Tiffany Balducci, she, her pronouns. And I'm Brittany Nisbet, she, her pronouns. Today's podcast will explore some internal issues in our labor movement and workplaces around women and gender oppressed people. We will be talking about misogyny, sexual sexual and gender-based harassment, and finding out more about how unions and QP in particular are addressing these important issues. Given the nature of today's podcast, we want to alert our listeners that the content includes discussions of sexual and gender-based harassment, sexual assault, and identity-based harassment. We encourage you to care for your safety and well-being. If you feel that you need support after listening to this podcast, please don't hesitate to call your union, your employee assistance plan if you have one, or visit www.canadianwoman.org, which has a listing of support lines that you can also reach out to. There may also be grassroots or mutual aid support in your location as well. We also want to recognize that this podcast was recorded on and listened to on various lands that have been cared for and continue to be cared for by Indigenous peoples since the beginning of time. We acknowledge our colonialist history and how it has negatively impacted the lives of so many Indigenous peoples. We commit to working with others to bring justice to murdered and missing Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people from coast to coast to coast. We want to take this moment to express our solidarity with all who are resisting Canada's ongoing attempts at genocide of Indigenous peoples. And as a reminder, September 30th is Orange Shirt Day and the first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, which commemorates the lives lost and the ongoing grief Indigenous communities are experiencing due to colonial genocide through the residential school system or the so-called residential school system, which was really a detention system. Additionally, every year on October 4th, Sisters in Spirit vigils are held in memory of murdered and missing Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit people. We encourage folks to do some research and find ways to participate in honoring these upcoming days. So today is a bit of a heavier topic, and we just want to acknowledge that right off the jump. Definitely. Today's CupyCast is titled, A Woman's Place is in Her Union? with a question mark at the end, and we will explore how women are treated internally by the labor movement, representation of women in the labor movement, stories of sexual and gender-based harassment, and what is being done to address these issues, including an interview with CUPE Ontario Secretary-Treasurer Candace Rennick, who is also a CUPE National Executive Board member and co-chair of the Safe Spaces National Task Force with CUPE. When we are exploring the topics, we are discussing women and those who are oppressed under the material conditions that have historically been assigned to women, which includes trans and non-binary people, gender non-conforming people, intersex, agender, and queer people. We want to be very clear. Trans women are women. Yes. Feminism should be trans-inclusive, and ours certainly is. Uh, With that being said, Brittany, where are we going to start? Maybe a bit about why it's even important that women are involved in the labor movement in the first place, uh, regardless of barriers that we may face? Yeah, so I think that's a great place to start. Um, And because this is a bit of a heavier topic, like we said, I thought we could maybe have some fun, uh, make it a little lighter and do some women in in labor trivia. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think? 
Yes, I absolutely love trivia. (laughs) Yeah, I'm always up for learning some new things and I'm a big fan of trivia. Okay, okay, I'm really excited. Uh, So some of this might be really easy, um, but it'll be fun. It'll be fun. Uh, And for those of you who are listening, if you know the answers to these, feel free to like, unless you're like driving in your car, if you're at home, like shout out the answer too. (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's get started. Who was the first woman president of QP? I know the answer because I facilitate QP's labor history courses for QP, so I feel like I'm cheating by answering. Uh, um, so, uh, but I will, uh, I don't know, I'll, I'll answer this one and then I'll give Elise the next one. Is it Grace Hartman? It is, yes. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I was like, oh, Tiffany's probably going to know all the answers to this because I know she does the women in labor. Like, I know you do those courses. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so it was Grace Hartman, and she was elected to be president of QP National from 1975 to 1983. I actually didn't know this one, but I feel like her name's familiar. Isn't there an award that has to do with her? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Grace Hartman Award is awarded at QP National Convention, um, so it's awarded every other year. They're actually uh, a call out for the award uh, right right now at the time of recording. I'm not sure when it's due, though. I think it's due by the time this is uh, going to be listened to. It might be already passed, but future national conventions, it's awarded to women activists in CUPE. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually, uh, it pays tribute to Grace's activist spirit and her longstanding commitment to workers' rights. Um, So, for example, (laughs) I don't know if you guys know this. Uh, I mean, Tiffany might, but I'm not sure if you know this, Elise. But Grace was arrested for leading hospital workers in defying back-to-back orders from the Ontario Supreme Court. Uh, And as a result, she was actually... Yeah. (laughs) And as a result, she was actually sentenced to 45 days in jail. (laughs) Wow. I know. Yeah, you know... um uh, there was a few people that went to jail at that time during that, uh, when they got the back to work order and went on a legal strike. We should do a whole podcast on that, actually. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and then after Grace, the next female president was uh, Judy Darcy, and she was elected from 1991 until 2003. But since 2003, we haven't had another QP national president who identifies as a woman. Interesting. 2003 feels not like not that long ago, but according to my math, it'd be about 18 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we were all in much different places in 2003 in our lives. <laughs> and I just want to, Judy Darcy just followed me on Twitter, so yay. Hi, Judy. That's so cool. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> so first Gravy was Twitter famous, now you're going to be Twitter famous. It's fine. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> all right, so let's hop back into some trivia. Uh, so keeping on the president trivia track, um, let me ask you both this. Who was the first woman CLC president? Do you know, Elise? I honestly don't know this one either. I only know because um, it was discussed a lot in this last CLC. Uh, I believe it's mm-hmm. uh, Shirley Carr. Yes, yes it is. And I know this because Shirley Carr is from the Niagara region, so mm-hmm. I knew that she was the CLC. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So Shirley Carr was president from 1986 to 1992. Um, and what uh, when I was looking all this up, I found it really interesting to note that it took 30 years after the CLC creation, which was created in 1956, for a woman to become president. Um, Wild. I know. So for 30 years, it was only men as presidents. Hmm. Yeah. And so Shirley actually started as executive vice president from 1974 
1984, so like between those two years. And then in 1984, she became secretary treasurer. And then in 1986, she was elected as president. Um, she was also a past QP Ontario president, too. Oh, cool. Wait, so then after Shirley, have there been any other women as president of the CLC? Yeah, so uh, good question. It actually took until this year, 2021, for another woman president to be elected. So that's actually 29 years between Shirley Carr and the current president. Yeah, we covered that in the past episode of our podcast, uh, the one called Spillin' the Solidarity. Uh, but the current CLC president is mm. B. Brusque. So almost another 30 years between them, uh, which is a lot. And that's why people thought B was the first woman president, because um, it's easy to forget when there's 30 years between. Yeah. And when I was doing the math, I was just taken aback. I was just like, wow, that's that's a long time. <laughs> that's that's a long time. Um, mm-hmm. So how about uh, a final trivia question? Yeah, go for it. All right, so the Ontario Federation of Labor, also known as the OFL, was founded in 1957. Since then, how many of the presidents of the OFL have been women? So the only OFL president that I know, but I'm also not super familiar with labor um, trivia, is Patty Coates. So I'm going to guess one because I only know one. (laughs) Okay. And Tiffany, did you want to answer? I agree with I agree with Elise's uh, answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the answer is just one. It is Patty Coates. Yay! And, yeah, I got one. Yay, Congrats! Job, Yay! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Patty Coates was elected in 2019, and she was or is the very first woman president of the OFL. Okay, so if we do more math here, if the OFL was founded in 1957, you said, and it took, I guess, about 62 years for a woman to become president? Yikes. Again, when you do the math and just think about it, that's actually so sad because it's amazing that we have women in uh, leadership positions and president positions, but the time it's taken is just so much. Mm-hmm. And like Shirley Carr, I know Patty has been involved with the OFL for quite some time and she really worked her way up, correct? Yeah. So she was secretary treasurer from 2015 to 2019 and then she was elected president in 2019. But um, she was also a part of the Barrie and District Labor Council and she was involved with other OFL committees before being elected. Hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking about how when we really think about it, how long it has taken women to be in these spaces and the time that lines in between mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. I know I was I was really surprised when I was I I shouldn't say I was really surprised. Like I was surprised. But then unfortunately, at the same time, I wasn't mm-hmm. like it. I just I feel like 2001 was 10 years ago, not 20. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That always takes me by surprise. And, you know, it just goes to show how important it is for women to keep seeking leadership positions, um, even though there may be barriers in place or you feel like you have to work your way up. Um, And I believe that all these women that did make it to these positions that we talked about, all all the women that we named are white women, which is also important to note um, about the various uh, barriers at at, at an intersectional level as well. Very true, Tiffany. If anything, this little trivia you did, Brittany, was a super great lesson for us and I'm sure everyone else listening as well. Mm Uh, yeah, we, we have a lot of work ahead of us, um, but learning all this has really kept me motivated to continue that's for sure, and I hope that it's motivated all of you the same way. 
definitely. And and I think mm-hmm. I think our, our listeners will enjoy the the time for trivia as well. And um, one thing our listeners might also enjoy, and it's something that we haven't talked about uh, yet, I don't think, is the news source rank and file. Uh, do either of you ever check out their articles or social media? Yeah, I can't believe we haven't talked about rankandfile.ca. It's an amazing independent Canadian labor news website, and I've read a number of their articles before. Yeah, and I see their Facebook t- uh, posts and their tweets. They have like such a good analysis of the labor movement. Yeah, I agree. I have a few friends who write for them, and, and one of my friends, uh, Cole Rockerts, uh, they wrote an article uh, on or for rankandfile.ca back in March 2021, and it was entitled Sexism in Winnipeg's Labor Movement. And I want to know, we're going to talk about this a little bit, um, but if you uh, check it out, um, it's an investigative story that contains descriptions of sexual harassment. Um, So there's names with an asterisk that have been changed to protect the privacy of some individuals interviewed uh, because many are afraid to come forward in fear of being blacklisted by their union. That is so, so scary to think about. And that that happens even in the labor movement, that it's such a fear. Yeah, but it's it's a very real and very valid concern. and But it definitely sounds like an article to check out. Well done to Cole for tackling this topic. Yeah, definitely. So it's called Sexism in Winnipeg's Labor Movement. And I do encourage folks to go to rankandfile.ca and look into it um, in depth because it is an in-depth investigative uh, journalism piece. And I know um, in a CUPE context, a few CUPE functions that we've had throughout the year, CUPE National President Mark Hancock has addressed the topic of sexual assault and the fact that the QP uh, Manitoba president at the time uh, was charged uh, with a single account of sexual assault earlier this year. Yeah, and we were told that Mark contacted him immediately and actually asked him to resign, which was refused. From what we understand, Mark Hancock then invoked powers under the CUPE Constitution to place CUPE Manitoba under administration, which was ratified unanimously by the National Executive Board by CUPE. Yeah, so folks may wonder what it means to be put under administration, um, once again in a CUPE context. Uh, this is a process in the CUPE National Constitution that empowers the national president to take over the day-to-day running of chartered organizations when it is identified that a chartered organization has become dysfunctional or too dysfunctional to continue to serve its members, or there's substantial evidence of financial mismanagement or any kind of malfeasance. So um, these decisions aren't taken lightly, and it also must be uh, ratified by the National Executive Board, and it can be appealed directly by the National Executive Board. Um, so that's what happened um, when, when uh, in Manitoba when there was that charge of sexual Yeah, I'm glad assault. action is being taken now, but you have to wonder if it's because it's now hit the headlines. We have to do a better job as a labor movement on addressing these issues when they arrive, and we cannot let them be swept under the rug or minimize any of these issues. Yeah, I remember attending a conference recently, a virtual conference recently, where I went to the Women's Caucus. Um, And there was a question asked by one of the delegates about how women can handle and deal with the patriarchy and misogyny that is really inherent in some uh, in some locals in some spaces. And the uh, the person moderating the conversation, she said, sometimes we just need to let it roll off our backs like how water does with ducks. And I. Yeah, I was so frustrated with that comment. Like, I just had such a, like, reaction. I 
I'm glad it was virtual because I was not impressed. My mm-hmm. my cats went running when I yelled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe that I was actually sad, but partially I sadly can. Coming up, we actually have an interview with the National Executive Board and QB Ontario Secretary Treasurer Candice Rennick on that very subject of accountability and what is happening at QP on this end, on this issue at the end of this podcast. So you'll definitely want to stay tuned mm-hmm. for the end of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. and women face all types of misogyny and sexism in society, and because this is a systemic issue, women face these issues within our union as well. And some forms of violence against women are very overt and noticeable. However, women also experience microaggressions. Yeah, and for folks who may not know microaggressions or the term microaggressions, uh, it was defined by Harvard University psychiatrist Chester M. Pierce in 1970. And a microaggression is a term used for commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental slights, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative attitudes towards stigmatized or culturally marginalized groups. So women, BIPOC, 2SLGBTQ plus folks, workers with disabilities, and people who hold more than one of these identities experience microaggressions on a regular basis. Yeah, and it's uh, it's really important to note that while micro, microaggressions may seem really small in nature, um, we have to remember that the impact versus the intent of these real life situations. So all of our words and actions can have negative consequences. So even if you don't mean to hurt someone, you very well could have still caused them harm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, and I don't know if you can hear my dog in the background. He is not a fan of microaggressions and has decided to hit this point to two weeks about them so he's in uh, on he yeah. go yeah i've heard um microaggressions actually compared to uh mis- like mosquitoes so maybe just one isn't a big deal but it happens so frequently that if you get a bunch of mosquito bites it's just it's so it's just you know becomes so overwhelming and uh really really harmful so um that's one thing but sorry about my dog making an inter- intervention there <laughs> nico is always welcome it's fine <laughs> thank you No worries. And we totally understand that everyone is in a continuous phase of learning and everyone makes mistakes, but please try your very best to self-educate and talk to your family, friends, co-workers, and fellow union comrades on how you can be an ally. Definitely. And there's so many different types of microaggressions that women face. There's actually an article in Bustle uh, titled 15 Microaggressions That Women Face on a Daily Basis. I love the Bustle, like, that they just kind of always do, like, the the lists. It's really easy to read. Um, but it includes many forms that many people might not think about, including tone policing, period shaming, victim blaming, uh, slut shaming, mom shaming, and more. Yeah, it sounds like an excellent read. That actually reminds me, I recently started watching season two of Never Have I Ever, which is a Netflix show that's a coming-of-age comedy drama created by Mindy Kaling and Lang Fisher. Have either of you seen this one? I have, yes. I, but I, this is one of those things where, like, I watched, like, the first five episodes really, really quickly, and then summer hit, and I just got so distracted. Yeah, and it's on my list. Oh, no It's worries. on my list to see, but I haven't seen it yet, but I've, it's, a lot of people have recommended it. Yeah, well, Brittany, I've actually only watched up to episode five of the second season, so we're probably about around the same spot oh, right now. no, no, no. I've only watched up to, like, episode five of the first season. I haven't gotten oh. into the second oh, season yet. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Oh, no worries. I re- they actually recently came out with a second season. Um, but something I noticed in the first few episodes, um, there's kind of like this side story in the show about the lead story, Davy's cousin named Kamala. Oh, yeah. Um, and in the show, 
Camilla is working towards her PhD at Caltech, and in the research lab, she's working with a bunch of mostly white men, and she experiences sexism and misogyny in the workplace. Camilla is asked to do very menial tasks that none of the men working in the lab are asked to do, like washing beakers. And she works extremely long and late hours, with none of the other men being shown in the scene working alongside her. And even one of the men in the show try to take credit for her work. And when she brings up that fact um, that she was not given credit for her work, she brings it up to the head of the lab department, and she's given a speech about why she's even bringing up the situation. And the department chair just talks about his life accomplishments instead of actually supporting her. Of course. That's not surprising. Very typical in academia of, uh, yeah, white male privilege. (laughs) For sure. And this obviously hinders her ability to speak up because if she can't turn to the head of the department, who can she turn to now? The situation also highlights why why many women suffer in silence and don't say anything. To me, the misogyny and sexism that is depicted in this show is very similar to real life experiences and the way that women, especially women of color, are still being treated in the workplace. Hopefully by the end of the season, we'll see some justice for Kamla. Yeah. Thanks for sharing the show with us, Elise. I'll definitely add this to my watch list for sure. Yes, thank you. I uh, I definitely need to get back to watching it. But I think now that it's fall and like it's starting to cool down and I think I'll be like retreating back indoors. So I'll probably start watching more TV again. Because <laughs> like I said before, like I'm a one show at a time type of person, but I could definitely. Right. But I remember this being like a really easy to watch show too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first season, my mom and I actually just watched oh, it all in one night. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. What a good movie night. Well, I guess it's like a TV show night, but whatever. Anyways, uh, so you guys know how we chat about video game companies and developers on the last few episodes? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so there's some, like, not-so-great news coming out of the mm. video game development and publisher Activision Blizzard, and it super relates to this conversation. Oh no, that's so sad to hear. Yeah, yeah, so it actually, it's kind of a story, uh, but I feel like it's really necessary that I tell it, because it definitely relates, like I said. Uh, So it it turns out that the state of California has filed a lawsuit against Activision Blizzard, and so for you guys and those who don't know, uh, Activision Blizzard is a publisher and developer for games like World of Warcraft, uh, Call of Duty, and the game Overwatch. Oh wow, so super popular. Uh, games, but yeah, why was the lawsuit filed? Yeah, yeah, so it was spearheaded by the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, which I'll short form to DFEH. So the DFEH embarked on a two-year investigation into Activision Blizzard's workplace and the culture in that workplace, and they actually found that there was entrenched misogyny, gender-based discrimination, and uh, like, unfortunately, rape culture. Oh, goodness. That's so upsetting. Yeah, yeah. There's So I, I really wanted to look into this because I really wanted to do it justice when I was talking about it. So I found some really mm-hmm. good articles and some good quotes. Um, so there's one article, co- and it's called Gaming Culture is Toxic. A Major Lawsuit Might Finally Change It. And this article was written by Aja Romano, and it's on Vox.com. So if anyone wants to read it, you can go there. And the quote that I felt like described the sum of the situation is a woman employee had assumed some of the responsibilities of being a manager. But when she asked about being paid fairly, they were told that they could not risk promoting her as she might get pregnant and might like being a mom too much. Oh my gosh. What? Yeah. And so the article 
also goes on to say that there were many other times when other women at Activision Blizzard were criticizing or criticized for having to pick up their children from daycare and caregivers. Yeah, that's awful. Uh, and so many people think we're beyond that these days, but we're definitely not. I've joined a lot of um, Facebook and social media mom groups uh, since I'm, I'm a new mom. And uh, so many uh, women report on these groups that, or, or I should say uh, pregnant people or people expecting report on these groups that they're afraid of getting fired for being pregnant or that they've been laid off or they don't have access to childcare or their employer is really pressuring them to come back to work early. And, and this is in Canada, like on local Facebook mom groups. So awful. Oh, man. Well, this story gets worse. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. So as I was reading the article from Aja, it also discussed how there is a mm. quote unquote frat boy culture. So never good. No. Uh, so, for example, male employees would proudly come into work hungover. Uh, they would also be found often playing video games instead of doing their actual work. Um, it's even quoted in the article, a newly promoted male supervisor delegates his responsibilities to his now woman subordinates in favor of playing Call of Duty. Yeah, I definitely don't like the use of subordinate there. I mean, um, it depends, I guess, if he is their supervisor, uh, then perhaps uh, he feels like he can do something like that um, to hmm. what he feels are his, his subordinates in this culture. Me either. You can just feel the misogyny by the use of that word alone. I know. Like, when I was reading about it, I immediately had a physical reaction. I, like, I felt heightened, and I kind of, like, went into, like, that fight or, f that fight or flight type of mode, and, like, I kind of actually, like, had a little bit of adrenaline rising up. I had to, like, stand up for a minute and walk around. Yeah, that are, mm. there's so much going on there, and it's so true um, when they say, you know, watch what you say. We talked about the microaggressions, you know, already. Words are so impactful. Yeah, it, like, isn't it ever? Um... So it also turns out that during this investigation, there were many instances of harassment, such as inappropriate sexual advances, rape jokes, uh, demeaning sexual comments, and even some non-consensual touching, groping, and physical harassment. Ugh. It just keeps getting worse. Yeah, it, it really does. It really does. And so there was um, another quote in the same article. Like, we're still talking about the same article because I just felt like this one had everything. Um, so there's another quote in the article, and it was from a feminine activist named Brianna Wu. And she says, and I found that this summarized it really well, what you have is an industry filled with Peter Pans. And the thing is, Wendy eventually leaves the Lost Boys, and that's very much a metaphor for the gaming industry. Mm -hmm. She even says that Blizzard is well regarded for putting out games that are fun to play, but they have that stench of misogynistic dated game design. Mm. And I just thought that these quotes were really effective <laughs> and they really brought to light the depth of what's been happening. Yeah, you're not wrong at all. So since this has all come out, what have others done about it aside from the lawsuit? So, uh, like, personally speaking, I know many gamers, like my partner Matthew and um, some gamer coworkers of mine, who are actually boycotting playing any of the games made by Activision Blizzard. Nice. Yeah, like, so, 
it it sounds like a really good idea at the time, and I'm not saying that it's a bad idea, um, but like it is a good idea. Uh, but when I was looking more into this, I actually found a, a tweet by a person named Stephen Tutillo, and he's a gaming journalist. Um, he actually is like a really big uh, history in the gaming area, and he used to be the editor in chief at a gaming blog called Kotaku. So he actually goes into more depth about what gamers can do and what people can do and give some really great suggestions. Yeah, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, so his tweet says, a reader asked me how gamers can support good developers and push back against toxic ones. The fear is that boycotts would never be fully strong enough to do more than just dent the sales, and that would hurt profit sharing, increase management pressure, and actually lead to layoffs. So then he shared some tips from another developer named Megan of what gamers can actually do. And these tips include commenting on every article, calling on the press beyond just the gaming press, and get politicians to talk about business ripe with corruption. Megan says, when the suits are really scared, when the investors back off and cry for action, that's when we will see change. So if you guys want to see more of what Stephen has to say, you can find him on Twitter at Stephen with a P-H. Uh, so S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T-O-T-I-L-O. Um, but yeah, so it's it really, when it comes to the gaming industry, this, this tweet was really impactful because it really shows you how it's kind of all about the money. Like mm-hmm. nothing's going to change until it starts hurting their sales. Exactly. And I love that kind of collective action. What a great suggestion to show solidarity, but without hurting uh, the women who are already being targeted. Yeah. And there's actually um, things that other developers in the gaming industry are doing about this as well. What are they doing? So there was an open letter by a thousand former and current Ubisoft employees. Um, Wow. Yeah. So it was written to the management of Ubisoft. And in the first, uh, in it, they first side with the workers of Activision Blizzard. And they focus on the problems of the upper management there because the issues happening at Activision Blizzard are not fully unique. Um, so they're actually happening in the gaming industry as a whole. Um, Activision Blizzard is just kind of what everyone's noticing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so this type of culture has been really ingrained in the gaming industry for a long time. And to be honest, it's likely been since women have begun working in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but then this part makes me super happy. So Jeff Strain, he's a former Blizzard developer, and he's actually now the founder of a developer called Undead Labs. He has actually called for the gaming industry to unionize. Um, wow. Yeah. So because of as of right now, they the developers and people that work in that industry can be laid off with like no notice. Um, it's such a toxic work culture, lack of representation. Um, the workers in the gaming industry, they really, really need all of those protections that the union can give them. Yeah. And I mean, the way women identified, you know, workers in the video game industry have been treated has been no secret for such a long time. So it's really great that they're all standing together in that way. And if they unionize, that would be amazing. And it kind of Mm -hmm. brings to, you know, talking about the microaggressions and, you know, what people face either in their workplace or in their unions um, and, and, you know, having allies support you. I actually had a scenario where someone supported me. Um, But I guess I'll begin by asking either of you. So growing up, and I think many who know me know that I was a huge (laughs) fan of Saved by the Bell. Um, Did either of you- I had no idea. (laughs) I had no idea as I roll my eyes. (laughs) Have either of you watched the the original Saved by the Bell or the reboot? 
I've watched the original. I've seen the original. Okay, yeah. The original is, like, on TV every so often or whatever. Um, and, and I've seen, like, every episode a lot of times. But I always, you know, saw Jessie Spano standing up for herself against misogynistic and sexist comments. But sometimes it isolated her was done, you know, in a way that was a little ostracizing. So I always had a hard time navigating, um, pointing out what I find sexist, but making sure it's not ostracizing. Uh, so I would always try to find a way to do it, you know, in a more humorous way maybe than, than Jesse did in Saved by the Bell. So uh, what this brings me to say is uh, once at a QP Ontario school, um, a few years back, so a school where people come in and, and learn uh, all the different uh, labor courses that we have in person, this was back when things were in person, um, I was helping... Uh, a union brother uh, count raffle tickets, like 50-50 raffle tickets, and mm-hmm. I was kind of like squatting down to help him. Uh, and another person attending the school, uh, another union brother, walked by and yelled out, uh, hey, you got her right where you want her, down on her knees. Oh. And oh. yeah, so I was trying to think of something to say back that would, you know, kind of call attention to it, but in a way that couldn't, you know, wasn't mean or disrespectful or isolating to this union brother um, who said that derogatory comment. But before I could even think of anything to say, um, the person I was helping, um, who is, um, you know, male identified and another union brother said, you know, something like right away, like just jumped in and said, that's so disrespectful. I can't believe I hear something like that at a union function. I really um, hope you learn something while you're here because she doesn't deserve to be spoken to like that, uh, like at all. Like he was just like, buddy, come on, come on. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> the guy who made the comment just kind of said, ooh, it's just a joke. Um, and then someone else spoke up, another, another male identified uh, member, so another union brother, and said, well, it wasn't a funny joke. And so oh. to me, it felt mm. good and a bit of a relief that I didn't have to be the one to like, educate or speak up for myself on my own or say that made me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, I know others would disagree, maybe. They would say, oh, uh, you know, I might look like a damsel in distress having men speak up for me. But it really felt good for me to have an ally speak up um, and, and help out without even having to think about it. So I appreciated it, and I was happy it was addressed yeah. in that way. And I hope the person who said the initial comment uh, that was derogatory uh, learned something at the at that school as well. Yeah, for sure. And thank you so much, Tiffany, mm-hmm. for sharing that personal story with all of us. I think now might actually be a good time to chat about what resources and support is available for union members who are experiencing sexual violence and harassment in union spaces, since it definitely does happen. So the QP Ontario Women's Committee has developed the We Believe You Toolkit, which actually just launched last year. The We Believe You Toolkit has information on what sexual violence is, who is affected by sexual violence, how you can support someone who has disclosed that they have experienced sexual violence, and much more. The toolkit can actually be found on the QP Ontario website, and we'll leave the link to the toolkit in the QP Cash show notes below. Thank you so much to the QB Ontario Women's Committee and all the women who are part of creating the We Believe You Toolkit. I know that it'll be valuable for many, many years to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, new supports and resources are always welcome. So if you have any ideas, please, please, please reach out to info at qp.on.ca to share your ideas. And I've also recently heard of the idea of having a women's advocate program. 
um, by Leela, who is the QP Ontario Women's Committee Chair. Uh, so she describes this program idea um, as a woman's advocate is a specially trained workplace representative who assists women with concerns such as workplace violence or workplace harassment, intimate violence and abuse. So the women's advocate is not a counselor, uh, but rather it would provide support for women who are seeking uh, workplace and community resources. So the Women's Advocate Program is just an example of a joint union management workplace initiative that really, really would help create healthy, respectful and safe workplaces. Uh, but it's really exciting to hear about all the new ideas coming forward um, and all of the new supports. So I think that this might be a great time for us to jump into our interview with the QP Ontario Secretary Treasurer, Candice Rennick. Thank you so much for joining us today, Candice. So we hear you're co-chair on QP National's Safe Spaces Working Group. Can you tell us what's going on with this group? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Tiffany, and thanks for having me on today. Really important uh, subject you folks are talking about. Yeah, so the Safe Spaces Working Group, I mean, despite the considerable measures and tools that QP's put in place over the years, members in the union still uh, experience sexual and gender-based violence and other mm. forms of harassment and discrimination um, inside of our own union spaces. We mm -hmm. know that violence, harassment, and discrimination does, um, it seriously undermines union solidarity. It does irreparable harm. And we really have to sort of recognize that until all of us are safe, none of us is safe. So it's out of that recognition and a clear call to action from women in the union that, you know, we've decided it is time to take steps to do everything we can to make sure that our uh, spaces are safer. So the National Executive Board has created a Safe Spaces Working Group. It's comprised of women on the National Executive Board, and we've been mandated with the task of reviewing all of the tools and processes currently in place inside of the union, including but not limited to our equality statement, the code of conduct, our human rights material and other education material, our ombudsperson program, our trial procedure, um, and we've also been mandated to consult widely and broadly with the QP membership to hear directly from our members on this topic. Um, and through this process, which we've also hired external uh, expert consultants to work with us and guide us through, because while we as women leaders have lived experiences, we're definitely not experts on this subject. And so we are relying on external consultants to help with this work. Um, but through this process, we hope to to identify areas where gaps exist so that we can rec make recommendations to QP that will eliminate those gaps. Um, and these recommendations could be on processes and protocols on our education and training models or on constitutional change within our union. Everything is on the table and we will make whatever recommendations make sense to achieve our goal. You know, I wanted to also add that, you know, the women on the National Executive Board and so many others in our union understand that this work is urgent and essential. Um, and I want to acknowledge how pervasive and deeply ingrained these problems are. And to say that, you know, as women leaders, we are no longer prepared to shy away from these hard and difficult conversations that need to take place in our union. And so I'm really proud to be a member of the Safe Spaces Working mm -hmm. Group and really look forward to what it's gonna bring for our union. 
Thank you so much for that. And it sounds like such, you know, important work has already been started. Are there any specific next steps uh, for this working group to let us know Absolutely. about? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so we are working with the consultants right now. We're going to be developing a survey. Uh, we want all members to participate in the survey. We're going to put out this survey as widely and broadly in the union as we can. This survey will be launched in early September. Uh, it's going to be open for a couple of weeks. When the survey closes, uh, folks will start to analyze the results of the survey. And then we're going to uh, organize a series of consultation sessions in every region across the country, which will be facilitated by experts and facilitators, which will give us another opportunity to hear directly from members in the regions. This could be virtual town halls, it could be focus groups, it could be roundtables. Um, it's going to be a multitude of ways to engage members to hear directly uh, from members. And we expect these consultations to begin in early October and go throughout um, the month of October. Uh, at the same time, a comprehensive review of all of CUPE's practices and protocols currently in place uh, is being reviewed with the external consultants to determine uh, what's working well and what needs work. And um, our goal after these three pieces of work are complete uh, is to have an initial round of recommendations for the union to consider adopting. Um, we also think at that time that we'll be determining what steps need to be taken to go forward. And I think that you can expect that there will be a preliminary report at the national convention. But on the, con uh, the consultations in the region and the survey, uh, this isn't gonna work unless all QP members step up and participate and have their voice heard. So mm -hmm. we're really hoping that people engage uh, and participate in both the focus groups and the survey. Amazing, sounds like there's a lot underway there at the national level. Um, we know that you uh, represent uh, Ontario at the National Executive Board. And of course, you're the QP Ontario uh, Secretary Treasurer. Can you let us know of anything going on in a QP Ontario context? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, women in Ontario have been raising these issues for years at conferences, at conventions, uh, through resolutions and motions. So we've created at QP Ontario a sexual violence working group, which has started to review materials developed by locals, specifically as it relates to issues of internal member-to-member -member harassment and violence. Um, our Women's Committee has already created a sexual violence resource guide for locals. Folks are working on model bylaw language and other things. So in so many ways, uh, QP Ontario has already begun the important steps in this work. And I know that members in Ontario are deeply committed to this work. Um, and we, we will be inevitably feeding into the national process as it evolves so that we can learn uh, from what they're learning and apply uh, and adopt uh, what's coming out of those recommendations in our region where it's appropriate. So I think we're going to see a bit of a parallel process unfolding as the National States Safe Spaces Working Group does their work, the Sexual Violence Working Group in Ontario does their work, and then finding ways to actually integrate uh, and sort of intersect both, uh, both groups' work. Wow, I'm so glad this important work is being done on, on such a systemic and, and pervasive issue. So thank you so much for laying that all out for us and for our listeners. And, you know, I have another question. Um, you've been involved for many years with QP, uh, starting off as a young worker, and I'm sure you've seen it all. Uh, what advice would you give to other women identified leaders, you know, not just in QP, but in the broader labor movement? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's a good question. You know what? I think first and foremost, I would say uh, to women who are 
or questioning their place in the union, that you do belong, uh, that your voice matters and you should be at the table for all discussions in the union where decisions are being made. Don't, don't hesitate or doubt that for a second. Um, I would encourage uh, women to step outside of their comfort zones, to be bold and courageous and to not be afraid to name outright um, injustices whenever and wherever they occur because difficult conversations in our organization are healthy, they make us stronger and we shouldn't shy away from them. And I think I'd also wanna offer to women to find other women that you can draw strength from uh, and to never underestimate the power of women coming together to organize. That is how change and monumental shifts can happen. And you know, I know that I'm really inspired by this movement happening from women in our union to take charge of the situation to push the union to a more progressive place. And I'm excited about the possibilities uh, that women can bring to this work in our union. Well, that's very, very uh, inspirational. And on a personal level, Candace, I just want to thank you as uh, when, you know, as I got started as a, a woman leader in CUPE or the labor movement, uh, you've always been such a source of um, mentorship and inspiration and, you know, solid uh, friendship and, and just there for not just me, but so many members. So I want to thank you for that as well. Um, and for all the time you take and, and devotion to uh, bettering the labor movement and for the time you took with us today for this podcast. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, just thanks for that, Tiffany. And to say that you two have been a solid uh, friend and ally to me. You're a great activist. And I know uh maybe by the time this records you're already going to be a mother and i think yeah. you're going to be a fantastic <laughs> mother you. uh and uh if you need any of my support uh balancing sort of life and work and union don't hesitate to reach out you know i've got your back thank um you. but anything else i would want to add i think i would just want to say thank you thank you to uh the folks organizing the podcast for dedicating time to this really important discussion uh, these conversations aren't easy and we shouldn't shy away from them any longer. We shouldn't be afraid to have them. Uh, they're meant to be uncomfortable. And through these difficult conversations, we're going to come out stronger and better for it in the end. Uh, and I look forward to being a part of that change with you and so many others. Oh, thank you, Candice. And it's always so great to hear from you. Thanks, your experience, you. yeah, your experience and commitment to the labor movement um, I know I keep saying inspiration, but it, it really is uh, truly you're, you're a trailblazer in so many ways. Um, and so for our listeners, just uh, letting you know that uh, Candace Rennick is Secretary Treasurer of CUPE Ontario. Uh, she also serves on the CUPE National Executive Board and has for many, many years. And if you'd like to follow her on Twitter, you can at Candace Rennick. Thank All you right. again, Candace. Thanks, Tiffany. Thank you so much to everyone for tuning in to CupiCast. And once again, thank you to Candace Rennick for joining us. Mm -hmm. We know that there's a lot more we could have covered on this topic, but we encourage union members to check out what educational resources may be available. I know in CUPE we have courses such as Women Breaking Barriers and Women Speaking Up, as well as the uh, conventions that we have. We have Women at the Mic on how to feel more comfortable speaking at convention. Yeah, and something else exciting that's coming up in the QB world is the QB Ontario Young Workers Conference, mm. which is happening from October 14th to 16th in Niagara. Um, so, Or it might actually be virtual, depending mm -hmm. on 
how the pandemic is shaping up in the fourth wave. Um, but feel free to check out the QB Ontario website on how to register and for more up-to-date information on whether or not it will be in person or virtual. I really hope that it can be in person under public health guidelines <laughs> because that is in my neck of the woods and I would love to see everyone. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> That would just make me so happy. Uh, we also have the QP Ontario Health and Safety Injured Workers Conference. Uh, that is coming up from October the 20th to the 22nd, and it is being done on a virtual platform this year. The committees are right in the midst of planning it and getting it ready for everybody. Nice. Those will both be great conferences. Uh, thanks for mentioning them. And thank you to our listeners for listening to episode five of QPCast, A Woman's Place is in Her Union. We want to once again recognize the hard work of our producer, Muhammad Akbar, for his talent in making this podcast sound amazing. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And to Liam Bedard and staff, all the staff at QP Ontario for promotions um, and making this podcast really come to life. As always, if you have ideas for future podcasts, please email us at info at qp.on.ca. Thanks for listening. Sending solidarity. 